Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and today we're here with Even Stevens. Nashville Hall of Fame songwriter Even Stevens discovered his love of songwriting after exploring a wide range of odd jobs in the 60s and 70s. A devout pacifist and raised by a pastor in Ohio, rather than get drafted into the Army during the Vietnam War era, he enlisted in the Coast Guard and was stationed in San Francisco when it was the epicenter of anti-war protest and at the height of the hippie revolution. After that, his songwriting muse drew him to Nashville in the 70s, where he wrote songs living out of his Jeep. In a stroke of magical alchemy, he met his writing partner, Eddie Rabbit, and together their songs reached the tops of the charts. Even went on to co-write with many legends and Hall of Famers of the Nashville songwriting scene, and his songs have been recorded by over 70 legendary performers, ranging from George Jones and Glenn Campbell to Tim McGraw and Blake Shelton, and my personal favorite, the Chipmunks. again takes him home puts him to bed and rubs him with men she's sweeter than grapes growing out in california softer than fuzz on a sweet georgia peach watch you going down like a 22 year old brandy when she loves me, Lord, she's fine, fine as wine. You know, your first song, Fine as Wine, by Billy Walker in 1974. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, a, that was a hoot getting that one. That song was uh, one of me and Eddie Rabbit's first songs we wrote, one of the very first. And uh, we really liked that song. We played it a lot just for the fun of it. You know, in the house, <laughs> just in the when we were writing it, and afterwards we liked that song a lot. If I remember correctly, uh, Stonewall Jackson also cut it. There's a funny story about him recording it. He uh, he asked us to come to the studio to when he recorded it, which was pretty uh, common then in those days. It's not now, but it was pretty common then. And uh, you have to have a certain attitude to be able to pull that off because having people in the studio can be annoying to somebody, you know. And you, so, so you kind of get at the, the thing that you don't say anything or give any suggestions unless you're asked if you're in the studio with an artist, right, about your song. So uh, Stonewall was, uh, you know, he is countryer than water, that guy. You know, when, when he first went to the Opry, they gave him, he, he kind of had a, a B.O. problem. I guess, and they gave him a can of Right Guard, and he sprayed it on the outside of his clothes. <laughs> he was, that's country. He didn't know that you're supposed to put it on first, <laughs> which was really funny. I thought, but anyway, uh, and he was a very nice fella, just just down to earth and very nice. And uh, he cut that song, and he invited us to come to the Opry. He was going to debut it on the Opry, and my and my men mentor Jim Malloy. 
he actually was uh, the sound in, uh, consultant for the Opry at that time. So I went out the Opry a lot with him and sat in the booth and he would consult, you know, and as they recorded it and, and listened to it and sent it out over the airways, you know, with the engineers. Stonewall walked out to do a song and we went, that's not, that's not Stonewall. He's got long, bushy hair like a beetle cut, you know, and he had like his hair broke cream back, you know, he was a very country guy. And then we realized... <laughs> He was trying to be hip because he had hung out with me and Eddie. We had real long hair at the time, you know. <laughs> he was copying your haircut? <laughs> yeah, he was trying to get hip, you know. And he came out on the Opry that way. And, and the engineers were like, oh, gosh, that was, a, that, that was wonderful to them. They were just cracking up, you know, and just going, oh, my gosh. And he did that. And I guess uh, that's the last time he did it. <laughs> he greased it back down. And it was, he had just washed it and put it in a beetle cut look, you know. So we were cracking up in the thing. We were going, oh, come on. Stonewall, <laughs> that's crazy. So anyway, but anyway, he cut the song, and and, uh, uh, and uh, a guy named uh, I see there was a, a rodeo guy that cut that. Oh, oh, a big one, the guy that Garth uh, wrote a whole album about. I think it was. There was a rodeo guy that cut that song too. So it got cut quite a few times. Didn't you have like Bobby Bear do one of your songs? Yeah, Bobby's did a few of my songs. He did Crazy in Love, uh-huh. and he also did. Um, he had a single on a song called uh, Too Many Nights Alone that uh, Shel Silverstein and I wrote together. I knew Bobby f- through Shel as one of the great guys in the music business, Bobby Bear. Let's there. talk about both of them. Okay, uh, all right. And your your relationship with Bobby Bear. And, and well, as uh, I don't know if you know this, but I met Shel because he was hitchhiking on Music Row. I was driving my, I had a big blazer at the time, and I was driving down Music Row, and I recognized him from photos I'd seen of him, you know. And I stopped, and I said, Shell. He says, yeah. He looked at me suspiciously. I said, uh, you want to ride? Because he never drove. And that's a long story in itself. But do you want to ride? And he, he looked me over for a few seconds. He goes, yeah. And he got in, and we wrote five songs that day. Three of them got recorded by major artists. And uh, we just became friends. Just what are the other two songs, and should we get those recorded? Well, Danger of the Stranger was one of them. That was the fourth one? Yeah, it was one of them. That was recorded. I, I don't remember. Uh, California Christmas, I think, was one of them, which was a Hillary Cantor Christmas song that we and other people have recorded that. But Shell uh, and I just hit it off right So the point. first day you meet Shell Silverstein, you're writing a Christmas song we wrote five, later the day. Yeah, we wrote five songs that day. And one of them is a Christmas song. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. It's one of my favorite songs, too, actually. California Christmas, it's called. But he was just a... He's the most creative person I ever met in my life. He just... He, he lived and breathed it. He didn't watch TV. He didn't go to movies. His only other hobby was women, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? And that was off and on because he was very creative. He was always writing something. There's so many things about his, his life that people don't even know about. He wrote plays with uh, David Mamet. He, uh, he did all kinds of things. And besides his children's books that were, he's the third largest and children book. Playboy cartoonist was yeah. when you, at this time period when you met him, yeah. that's what he was known for. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. Like yeah. That, that was the, the first thing in his bio, you know, Shel Silverstein, Playboy yeah. cartoonist. Yeah. And he lived the, the perfect uh, songwriter's life. He had a, a funky apartment in Greenwich Village. He had a house in uh, Martha's Vineyard, a little cottage. He had a, two houses down in Key West next to each other. 
and uh, he had uh, his own uh, suite of rooms at the Playboy Mansion because he, he started with Playboy, you know, and he was welcome friends with, with Hef in the mansion. Yeah, so where the weather went, he went, and he just locked up the other ones, and so he just roamed around, you know, and came to Nashville a lot. So he he was he was really a vagabond songwriter, just a and a, just a sweet guy. He kind of looked like the devil, you know, with the bald head and all that, and uh, the beard and everything. He he had that kind of look, but he was the sweetest person you'd ever meet in your life. Midnight flights and barroom lights and roaring for three days and nights in motel rooms have been my only home. They gave me these sad knowing eyes and old age lines before my time. I guess I spent too many nights alone Denver trains and LA games taxis through the New York rain on everybody's party but my own Many Nights Alone is one of my favorite songs we ever wrote. It's my mother's favorite song that I ever wrote. With Shell? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that song. Well, we were, we were, if I remember correctly, we were sitting around. uh, We were, there was a house next door to the Glazier Brothers, and uh, a woman uh, lived there. And she was, back in those days, there was, there were ladies in Nashville that were friends of songwriters, and they'd just, they'd feed us and and uh, welcome us in, and we we do in the round in their living rooms, you know. Long before it was done at the Bluebird, it was that's what you did as a songwriter. You met up in somewhere and did. Do you song remember to do. the women? Some are, yeah, um, um, recorded. Uh, yeah, well, actually, uh, the lady that lived next door to Glazier Brothers was uh, uh, the person that fed me most of the time because I didn't have anything to eat. I, if I didn't, I used to go by Hazel Smith's office at uh-huh. Pier Southern sure. to uh, just have breakfast because they had donuts in the morning and <laughs> I'd just hang out there just so I'd have something to eat because I was sleeping in my Jeep, you know. I got to know the lady next door to, to the Glaciers and uh, she later married John Hartford and they were married for until they both passed away very shortly from each other's death she passed away shortly after john did from broken heart i think that's where i met john hartford i met uh, johnny darrell all these great songwriters peck chandler all these people at that house and shell and i would go there all the time and write uh, and that's where you wrote too many nights alone i think that's where we started it yeah i believe so and we were talking about you know the the life of a a singer and a, a songwriter and and traveling around and not really getting having a real long-term relationship with people with women especially you know and uh, we just tried to put that in a song yeah it's been compared to bob seeger's turn the page i believe oh it's, a, it's yeah. in that vein isn't it yeah yeah we didn't think of that but 
you know. Oh, he did. I don't know. You did this first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually. Maybe you but, inspired him. <laughs> uh, I doubt that, but. <laughs> I mean, you tried that life and decided you didn't like it, like going on out there and performing oh, yeah. as an artist I did in, I, in I, your career a lot of the songwriters I've interviewed that's their, their yeah. story is they tried it and it wasn't for them yeah well I, I turned down uh, some some people that wanted to work with me when I first came to town because that was my dream was to be a writer and an artist and I came to town to do that to, to pursue that and uh, Ray Stevens uh, I got a chance to work with him and uh, did some demos and stuff with him and he, he was so he's a was a genius and a wonderful person to work with and just sitting on a piano bench with him was a highlight of my life and playing my songs you know at a session getting it together it was just a highlight and a half and but he had he had has uh, everything is beautiful and some you know which was a monster hit after we were together for a few i guess a month or two he goes, even he says, I, you know, I'd like you to write for me, but I can't produce you. I've got, I'm trying to get another hit myself. You know, he says, and I, I really need to concentrate on that. So I, I really don't have time to produce you. But if you want to be a writer, the first songwriter I met in town was Lang Martin. And he worked with Ray. He was with Ray the whole time. He was a, has been a songwriter. And so I, that's how I kind of got to know Ray was through Lang. He says, so, you know, if you want to do that, I said, no, I want to be an artist, too. So I'm going to keep looking for somebody that's interested on both, both ends of it, a producer and a publisher. That's what I wanted when I first came. And then when I finally got a, a deal on Electra Asylum and did an album, Shel Silverstein helped me with the album. And uh, Jim Malloy and Dave Malloy uh, co-produced it. We did it at Quad, and uh, it was really a, a hoot doing it. It was really fun making it. But then I went on the road, and you have to go out and promote it. And I was with uh, radio guys, you know, that uh, for the districts I was in and doing, doing some shows like at colleges and stuff, trying to get known. And after about three weeks of it, I just got tired of it. I was going, I'm not writing any songs. I'm living in a hotel all the time. And I was sitting in a room in New York. I said, I don't think I'm going to do this. So I called the head of the record label, Steve Wax at the time, out in L.A., and I said, Steve, you don't have that much money in me, uh, and I don't really like this life. Uh, I'd like to be released. He goes, I've never had this phone call before. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else wants to get to this I said, place well, you're at. <laughs> yeah, probably. I'm sure. I was, I was dying for it. And I said, I just, I, I like the life of a songwriter. I just want to be released and quit. He goes, okay. And the next day I flew home, and that was it. And I felt so good. When I hung up that phone, I felt, never felt so good in my life. Thank you for listening to Backstory Song. If you like our podcast, you can become a patron at our Patreon page, where you will receive bonus interview tracks with your favorite songwriters and early release access to upcoming episodes. It is only $3 per month or the price of a cup of coffee to become a Backstory Song patron. Do you remember the single you were promoting? It may have been Let the Little Boy Dream. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it could yep, have been that. that. It was, went to 38 on the charts yeah. in 1975. It, it was number one in Texas a couple of places and okay. stuff, too. It, it did hit pretty good in a couple of places. But that was a true song about my first son, uh, Seth. And and he's on the record. He's he's the youngest recording artist ever. He's six months old. I got him down on the floor and tickled him and got his laugh. And the record starts with his laugh and then the turnaround his laugh. And at the end, he's laughing. Uh, giggling as a baby and it's all about him you meet Eddie Rabbit mm -hmm. 
and had an incredible lifelong collaboration yeah. with yeah him. a good 15 years we his life yeah for most of his life yeah and, and professional life yes tell us about that well i was at a party one night and uh, it was down where tin angel is that restaurant tin angel across the street from it there's an apartment building there and and for some reason i don't know what even what party it was it this who why i was even there you know because i was just starting i'd had maybe a couple recordings and uh, I met Eddie. Uh, there was this guy there, and we started talking. We was up on the third floor, second or third floor. And so we were talking. We kind of hit it off, and we were talking about music and everything. He was a struggling songwriter, too, and he had just gotten Kentucky Rain Cut by Elvis Presley. I found out while we were talking. Anyway, he was just starting to really hit with something big. And uh, we started talking, and uh, he looked down out the window, and he says, Is that your Jeep down there? I said, Yeah. He goes, uh, will you help me move tomorrow? And, uh, and it's the last thing you want anybody to ask, even a friend, right? Well, you just met the guy. <laughs> yeah. And I went, oh. This guy must be from New York. I went, right? I went oh, <laughs> it was from New Jersey. Right, I know. And I was going on inside. I was going, oh, gosh, I don't want to help somebody move. I don't know, you know. But I said, okay, right? So we, the next day I went to his apartment where he was, and uh, it was like on the third floor, I think. I walk in, and there's a monkey cage there about a five-foot-tall cage, about five-foot square. And it was kind of funky, you know. And this monkey, this little organ grinder monkey named Jojo was in it. And he, I said, yeah, you got a monkey? He goes, yeah. He says, I acquired him a few years ago. And so he, what we can do is just bust this cage down and put it in your back of your Jeep. I went, no, no, I don't know you that well. I, I sleep back there. You ain't putting that funky monkey cage in the back of my Jeep. So we did what the, you should do when you're a redneck. You broke it down. We put it on top. And as we drove down the road, we each had our hand out on top of it, you know, like a mattress, that kind of thing. So I'm sure we were a sight going down the road. And the monkey left you alone. Well, the monkey was in a, in a carrier oh. in the back. Yeah. But that monkey uh, was, it pulled my hair out. And it was, I bet that monkey was almost everything we ever wrote. It was in the room with us. Uh, Jojo. I really got to know Jojo well over the years. What did Jojo eat? He ate, oh, this is funny. He, he had a, uh, a big boy doll, you know, those plastic dolls that look like Frisch's big boy or Shoney's big boy. And he had torn the top of the head out, and Eddie stuffed fruits down in there and handed it to him, and he would eat out of that. <laughs> so he had to have fresh fruit and he day. had his own uh, TV too it was right outside his cage and uh, he uh, went crazy when certain things came on like he knew when the hee haw was going to be on he liked hee haw yeah he loved hee haw and he loved the, the girls that were on it and, uh -huh. uh, and he, he loved it when he knew when it was going to come on and what day it was and everything he would get it ready with his food and he also loved Johnny Carson when he came out from behind the curtain he would go nuts <laughs> And also, um, any blonde girl, he went crazy over. And I don't know if we want to get into that. Well, but it sounds like he had good taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was a, he, of sorts. He's a bad. <laughs> so anyway, that's how I met Eddie. So but, after you move him, does he say we should write together? No, <laughs> no. Yeah. We actually just became kind of like friends. And Hang went, out buddies. Yeah, we go down to Skull's Rainbows Club down in Printer's Alley and... Uh, just hang out, you know. We didn't really write for months and months, and then one day we said, eh, let's, "Let's try to write something." It just flowed out. You remember the first thing you guys wrote together? I don't remember what song it was, but I remember how magic it was. We just 
it was just so easy and so good. And and our guitars, the main thing we had together at first and all through our career was that we both played a certain kind of rhythmic guitar that really worked out together, you know, counter rhythms and stuff. And it was really a magical musical thing. And it was good because we could write for hours and hours and it would be magic even if we didn't have the words. We we had the music. It's when Eddie starts recording the songs himself that you get to drinking my baby off my mind. Yeah. Which is really the breakout. Yeah, right? that was the first number one. First number one. Yeah, we had some songs before that that climbed the charts. Yeah. Uh, kind of like the way you want it to happen uh, uh-huh. uh, in the 20s and then in the teens. And I then... should have married you, got to 11. Yeah. Well, let's start with drinking my baby off my mind, which, because you, you'd sort of built an audience with the other songs yeah. up yeah. to this hit. Well, right? Eddie and I had a, a, a little cubby hole in his apartment, and I had one in my, my place. We had a sound-on-sound Sony recorders, which is like a two-track, and you can bounce back and forth from the tracks. It's, that was the first stuff that you could do that with. We would make our demos with a slapback sound. It has a slapback sound from switching it back and forth. And that's, they actually became kind of famous in town for the, the way they sounded because it was like a rockabilly kind of uh, demos usually. No matter that song, Drinking My Baby Off My Mind, especially had a rockabilly feel to it. Hey, bartender. Pop the top on another can Give me ten dimes For this dollar in my hand And turn the knob on the jukebox Way up loud I might drive out the whole damn crowd But I'm drinking my baby Off of my mind Hey, Joe But ain't you never loved and lost a real special lady? She was a sweet loving mama, she treated me right. I stepped out on her one too many times, now I'm drinking my baby off of my mind. Drinking, ain't thinking about facing tomorrow. We wrote that song and we had the pop a top thing sound on the front of our demo before it that that song became a hit. Pop a top, remember that song? Yeah. And they started with that. So we took it off his record even though we thought about using it, but it all you know I think he had a hit before we cut that song so we didn't do it. But uh we I think we came up with that first originally and uh and we 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 just were rocking uh, we were just channeling Buddy Holly and Elvis and everything. We wrote that song. You know, it was, it was a little more rockabilly than the, the record ended up. It's, it was a little more countrified, you know, because we were going for country hits. So we. So, so the, the original was more rockabilly. Just a little bit more. And, and they yeah. countrified it in the studio? Yeah, David Malloy produced it. I, I think it's a little more traditional country in the instrumentation on the record than the demo was. Boy, in those days, it was great because you just you'd call up 
a producer who were the A&R guys at the time, which to me is the way it should be. The A&R guys should be producers. I mean, that's perfect. You know, they're getting songs for the artists. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's the perfect thing. It's not so much anymore. I think it's lost something because of that, even though other people find great songs and everything. But we pitched that to Ray, Steve, uh, Ray uh, Pennington at RCA. But we, you could call him and say, hey, Ray, we just wrote something we think you'd love. And he'd go, well, come on over and play it. That's how it was, you know. And that was wonderful. That was a great way it was for songwriters in those days. And it just really, it, it made everything happen faster in those days because you could just, you'd be in the session two days later. They'd say, well, why don't you come to the, the session, you know, and you hear anything you, you want to change or anything, you can repair it or whatever, you know. So this was from Rocky Mountain Music, which was his second album? Second, yeah. Uh-huh. So you had the Eddie Rabbit album, which yeah. built a bass, and then yeah. this is the first single off the second album? I think it was. I think and it was. It, not sure you could probably tell there, but I think we had three or four singles before that. But it, we had the perfect kind of thing that happened. You get a, a song in the 20s, and then the next release goes up higher, and then higher and higher until you get to number one. And that's ideal if you can do it. You know? Right, right. Because uh, you build the base for, and of radio stations. So and if you have a hit right off the bat, a number one, that's good too. But not everybody goes on them sometimes, and you have to rebuild after that, I think. So it was kind of ideal. But this song, Drinking My Baby Off My Mind, this isn't about anything personal for you and Eddie. No. This is just just a songwriter's song yeah. about a breakup and yeah. drinking to solve the breakup. I could see the movie in my mind while we were writing that song in the bar. You know, uh-huh. hey bartender, pop the top on another can. Give me ten dimes for that dollar in my hand. I could see him standing there doing it, you know. People were interested in that song. We pitched it quite a bit, and people would hold it and stuff, but I know Ray cut it. I don't know if anybody else did, but I know that Johnny Bush did it first. And he had a, a good one on it, but it was really Texas. I mean, it was really Texas-sounding, you know. It, was, it, it turned out a little different with Eddie. It wasn't. So at this point, you've got your muse who's number one in the charts. You don't have to tour, and all you have to right. do is stay here in Nashville and, and, and write and go hang out on, in Sausalito on Shel Silverstein's <laughs> houseboat or, right. or something. That's right. right. Well, boy, life is <laughs> I'm great. I'm not stupid. <laughs> Did you guys write about any of your love interests? Oh, yes. I mean, is Janine, Eddie's uh, wife, uh-huh. in, in any of the songs? Oh, yeah. Which ones in particular? Well, there, there's a couple songs. Uh, it's always like the first time I didn't write that song. He wrote it. But it's really a great song. He, that was about her. And there's a, another song of his that I think is a monster hit. And we never got it out because we tried to do all singles on an album, which uh, is a good goal. But it's, it doesn't always happen because you can't get that many off an album. Usually during the, our heyday, there was three or four was the most you could get off an album before you had to have another album out, basically. One a year usually was what we did. And uh, But there was a song on one of the albums called I Don't Want to Make Love with Anyone Else But You that is one of Eddie's songs too, which is a fabulous song. If I ever get back into producing, I'm going to try and get somebody to do that song because it's fantastic. So let's talk about the work you did with Dr. Hook. Well, that was a stroke of luck. With, that was because of Shel Silverstein, really. You know, he'd written all their uh, stuff for two or three albums, I think. Cover of the Rolling Stone. Yeah, got stoned and I missed it. Uh, 
Oh gosh, so many songs, great ones, funny songs too. Yeah, and and he was a he was part of the person that started that group with with Ron Hafkin, their producer in New York. They were doing a Ron Hafkin got a soundtrack for a, I think it was a Dustin Hoffman movie, and uh, he got the gig of putting the soundtrack together. I think it was, and he had these guys uh, uh, Dennis Lecourier and Ray Sawyer who was the nucleus of Dr. Hook, the guy with the patch, Ray, yeah. who just passed away, yeah. and Dennis LaCourier. And Dennis was the guy who sang my song, uh, my big hit with them. And Shell was involved with those guys. He knew those guys up in New York. And they recorded your All the Time in the World, which you co-wrote with yeah. Shell. Yes, they did. It was, it, was a, it was a pretty big hit across the country, other countries, too, in London. And they released that in, it uh, looks like, February of 79, and then April... When you're in love with a beautiful woman. Yeah, and that one went nuts. That one went platinum or gold in 13 countries. And that was just written by you. You didn't, yeah. you didn't co-write with that. Yeah, I wrote that song in about 15 minutes in the car. You were in the car. Were you in love with a beautiful woman? I was. Uh, Do you remember her and name? And she was a singer. Uh-huh. Her name was Sherry. And uh, we'd been going together for about three or four months, I guess. And she was uh, actually singing in a band uh, down at the Holiday Inn down near Vanderbilt. And uh, so I went down to see her play one night. I was waiting for her to get off on her break so I could talk with her. And she never made it over to me because all the guys were hitting on her on the way through the crowd. And I got irked about that. And I went out and got my car or my truck. And I was heading back to my apartment. And I wrote that song in my head. And every word of it. And I didn't change anything. And I got in my apartment. I picked up the guitar. And I knew how to play it. And I went from irked to elated. <laughs> because I knew it was a good one. Well, I went in and, and put a demo down on it at uh, Steve Singleton's studio and with uh, two guys, uh, Jimmy Capps, a great guitar player, acoustic player, and an uh, upright bass player named Billy Lineman, who's gone now. And it was all it was on the demo. First, I went out to pitch it to Engelbert Humperdinck. Okay, yeah. <laughs> which is another story. I don't know yeah, if you want to get into Yeah, that's in your book. Uh, yeah. I think we have to cover it because it is part of the story. Well, yeah, it was. Uh, my, my mother's brother... 
Jack, my uncle Jack, lived out in Utah in Salt Lake City, and he was quite a character. And he was a really good golfer. And the first time Engelbert Humperdinck came to the United States, he met my uncle Jack on the golf course, and they became good friends. What a coincidence. Yeah, they really did. And so through the years, three or four years, he had called me and said, why don't you send me out some songs for Engelbert? I'll play them for him, you know? And I always thought it was cheesy to do that. And so I never did it. I never sent him one song for years. And then when I wrote this song and was working on it, I was going, no, he, he had that song After the Lovin', you know? And I said, this would probably fit in with that, you know, and that was huge, that hit, Engelbert's. I didn't know Engelbert at all. I thought, maybe this song, is, this is one I should send to him, finally. So I called Uncle Jack and I said, I'll send this out to you. I think I got something. He goes, no, no, no. You get on an airplane tonight and come out here to L.A. and I'll introduce you to Engelbert. You can play it for him. So I came out that night with my reel-to-reel demo of the song and uh, I met uh, Engelbert. Uh, he, he met us at the Beverly Wilshire or Beverly Hills Hotel. And we had some drinks, and then we went to some pubs, and he played darts, and we played darts. The Polo Lounge, I believe, yeah, yeah. is the name of the that's bar right. that's at the where Beverly we Hills Hotel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very hoity-toity. Yeah. And, and, a lot of uh, celebrities running around. Yeah, and Engelbert had a, a Rolls Royce, you know, and a very nice man, very nice man. So we finally go to his house, and it's on Sunset Boulevard, and he's pulling into the drive, and it was Jane Mansfield's old mansion. On the other drive next to it was Rod Stewart's place, and Cher's was on the other side. And I lived in a single-wide trailer in Mount Juliet, so <laughs> this was something to me. So we go down to his house, and it's it's had 13 bathrooms, this house. I mean, it was unreal. And it had a swimming pool, a heart-shaped swimming pool, and Jane Mansfield had built, you know, and everything. It was unbelievable. After we hung out there for a while, he says, I hear you got a song for me. And I said, yeah, I have it on. It's real, real tape. He goes, well, let's go down to my rec room and uh, you can play it for me. It's, I just put in a new system and it's fantastic. So we go down there and he real, puts it on the tape, hits the button and it goes about two bars and it ate my tape. I went, Engelbert, you just ruined my tape. <laughs> he goes, you just ruined my sound system. And we got a little testy there. So I hadn't taken a guitar with me and he didn't have a guitar, so I couldn't play him the song. So that night I flew home depressed that I'd blown it. You know, that it got blown. I didn't ever get to play it for him. So I told him before I left, I said, I'll send you a copy or something. He goes, okay. And it's funny because that song in England broke his record for number one at the, <laughs> mo- the longest in London. Uh, with, uh, with Dr. Hook. Uh, yeah, with Release Me. That, But anyway, so I get back and I, I go back in the studio and I'm putting, actually the girl wrote it about, she's doing harmony. What's her name again? Sherry. Sherry. Yeah. Shel Silverstein came by and he said, you know, even he says, uh, Dr. Hook's doing a third or fourth album and uh, I've written a bunch of songs for it, but they don't, they want to do something different and I, and they don't want to do the songs I've written for this project. And he said, I think you might have the kind of material they need. Can I bring them by the studio? And he brought their producer by while I was working on Beautiful Woman and he wanted it. And about... I guess three or four days later, I was down Muscle Shoals with the Swampers, cutting this song with uh, Dr. Hook, and uh, I drove home just elated because I knew it was a great cut. And they invited you into the Muscle Shoals yeah, studio. Yeah, I was there for for the recording of it. So uh, you write this song, and then Sherry, it's about Sherry. Uh-huh. Uh, you play it for her like that night, the next day? How does she react when you... I, I don't remember if I did or not. I don't know. 
I don't know if I did or not, but it was a true song, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's all about, I call those two years right there my paranoid years because I also wrote, co-wrote uh, uh, Suspicions with Eddie and David and, and, and Randy McCormick uh, in the same period. Uh-huh. And they were both about jealousy and, and uh, paranoia and yeah, love, you know? Yeah, a lot of women don't like that. So what happened? How did she react? Did, it, did you end up breaking up or did you we did grow end up longer? Break. No, we, we had quite a long relationship, actually, but we did end up breaking up. But not uh, over this song? No, 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 no. She was, a, she was a singer. She understood. Okay, and, and then Suspicions was right on the heels of that. It was. You want to talk about yeah. that? Yeah, that was one of the most magic things ever being created. I mean, this is a unique situation. We were at the Wally Hyder studio out in L.A. Uh, uh, David and I both, we, we weren't recording in Nashville much once we started having some hits because we felt that the studios were a bit dated compared to what was out there. And so we'd go work in Muscle Shoals first. That dated on electronics, where, yeah, where the electronics had evolved. Yeah, to? and the, the studios themselves. The they, attitudes. They just, no, 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 mostly the equipment, equipment. and uh. stuff. And and we just uh, would go other places to see what they had, and they were better. We thought it was better at the time. Uh-huh. That's quickly changed, you know. But but during that time, we so so we would go to Caribou Ranch out in Colorado. And uh, stay there, and uh, that was where uh, Jimmy Garcia, who started uh, Chicago and used to do Blood, Sweat, and Tears, he, it was his place. And he had a wonderful studio, Elton John cut Rock of the Westies. Yeah, two or three albums, I think, he cut there. And uh, Steve Martin did his comedy albums there, and uh, John Denver cut Rocky Mountain High there. It was a wonderful place. 3,000 acres with a studio on it. I mean, it was incredible, above Boulder. And we did a couple albums on Eddie out there. And and in this instance, uh, we had the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, who had played on some other stuff, come to Los Angeles to Wally Hyder's studio out there, which was a very famous studio. And we were recording, and I think we were just wrapping it up, pretty much all the cuts, you know, uh, tracking. And the band went to lunch next door at an Italian restaurant. And David uh, Malloy and Eddie and I and Randy McCormick, the, the keyboard player, stayed back. And the, and the recording engineer didn't go either. There was a Rhodes piano out in the studio, and he started playing a groove. And Eddie and I and David started writing a song. And in about 20 minutes, we had suspicions written, pretty much. And we were excited about it. And we said, uh, David actually said to the engineer, he said, Hey, uh, turn on a cassette or something and get this idea down for us so we don't... F- forget it right so we started playing it and roger hawkins the drunk great drummer he came in right then and he sat down at the drums without the hair, earphones or anything and just started jamming with us and when we got done we went man that really sounded good did you get it to the engineer because i put the drums and the piano and the vocal on a 24 track tape and that is the record that is the record we just added you just one bass, take. added the bass and changed some lyrics and eddie redid the vocal on a better mic and uh, he left for the road that night, and David and I got in, went into another studio and fooled with it, and a flute player that's a solo on that. David Hungate, uh, Toto, put the bass on it. That was it. That is the record from us writing it. So that's a co-write with David Malloy and Randy McCormick, uh-huh. as well as Eddie uh-huh. Rabbit. Yeah. Uh, all, all sharing that, and that goes to number one. Yeah, it was huge. It charts. was Song of the Year. It was Country Song of the Year, even though it was an R&B song, actually. And um, it's not about the same Sherry girl who no. was the most no. 
she's the most beautiful girl in the world, woman <laughs> in the world. This is just the, that feeling of jealousy. Yeah. There's no, worse, there's no worse feeling than jealousy to me and, and suspicion about in a love affair, you know. It's just to eat you alive. It's just, it's just a horrible feeling, but I think everybody feels it. I, I often, uh, when I'm talking with writers that are kind of fresh and new and everything, I say, you know, songwriters always avoid human frailties, and it's really what people relate to. I think it's because somebody records it that's famous, okay? And I think the ordinary listener that's not in the music business goes, wow, if he can feel that way, it's okay for me to feel that way. Jealousy and... It's one of the seven deadly sins, right? Yeah, and I, and I think uh, writers avoid that in songs sometimes because it's uncomfortable. But it's really, I think the public likes it. Because it's, it, it connects them with the, the person that's supposedly a star. How could they feel that way? You know what I mean? They kind of look at it that way, I think. And go, gosh, if he feels that way, if Tim McGraw feels that way, <laughs> I can feel that way huh. without feeling bad about it, you know? Yeah. So even, I mean, we have this year is beyond breakout for you guys, for you and Eddie. Gone too far, driving my life away. I love a rainy night, step by step in '81, nonstop number ones. Yeah, just and across the, the board too. Some of them were number one. It was it was just unreal. I mean, it really was. Un- Thank you for listening to Backstory Song. If you like our podcast, you can become a patron at our Patreon page, where you will receive bonus interview tracks with your favorite songwriters, and early release access to upcoming episodes. It is only $3 per month or the price of a cup of coffee to become a Backstory Song patron. Unreal. But you know what? We'd always go, now, let's not get stupid here. Let's dive right back in and write something again, write something else. We, we just really humped it. I mean, really... Well, the one I love is I love a rainy night because my dad and I commuted together. You remember where you hear certain songs, right? right. They, have a, they have a setting yeah. for it for, for you yeah. sometimes. Uh, that's you know? good to hear. And that one has a setting for me. Well, I love a rainy night. I love a rainy night. I love to hear the thunder, watch the lightning when it lights up the sky. You know it makes me feel good. Well, I love a rainy night, such a beautiful sight. I love to feel the rain on my face, taste the rain on my lips. In the moonlight showers. Showers wash all my cares away. I wake up to a sunny day Cause I love a rainy night Yeah, I love a rainy night Well, I love a rainy night Well, I love a rainy night I love a rainy night I love a rainy night I love to hear the thunder Watch the lightning when it lights up the sky You know it makes me feel good So let's talk about the, the backstory in this. This was a, a lyric that Eddie had been banding about for a while, right? Yeah, he had a, a little 
I, I would say it was about 10 seconds long piece on a cassette. And he, uh, he would bring it to writing sessions when I'd get together with him and, and also uh, when Eddie and I and David got together. For about three years, he'd, he'd, bring, he'd, he'd bring that and bring it up. And, and we just couldn't figure out what to do with it, you know. We, we didn't know what to do to make it. And then one, one day he came in with it and brought it up again. And I don't think it started this way, but it might have. I, I, I'm not sure. We started writing on it, and uh, David started doing that <coughs> hand claps and finger snaps. And I swear he should have had carpal tunnel after that because he did it for hours while we were writing that song. We wrote along on that song quite a while down on Music Row in our kitchen. And finally, we knew we had something good that day. We went, oh, that's good. And we went in and did a little demo of it. I played it on my show, the originals. It's real loose. It's got words in it on the demo that were thrown away later at the session. We, we rewrote it at the session. It was a, it was a real creative uh, process over years of getting to that song and writing it and forming it the way it should be done right up to the last minute in the studio. I like it because it's a bright key, mm -hmm. talking about a rainy song, you know. Yeah. And, and I like it because rain is usually a negative thing in right. country western music, yeah. and yeah. you flipped it, you, you, you yes. know. The yeah. Whole th and yeah, we knew we were doing that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We, we thought it was a novel way to do it. The, I have to say the hand claps and finger snaps are very, very cool in that song. It, I mean, they made it, David's it, it, original made the final cut. Yes. Well, well, no, we recorded it without that, and then we tried to put it on, and we all went out in the studio trying to do that. David did it for, and he couldn't get it all the way through the song to sound right. It's hard to keep the same sound going like that. Yeah, finger today snaps you just especially. Loop it, right? Thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> finger snaps especially. I mean, it changes every time you do it. And I discovered something during that time. It really shouldn't be called finger snaps because what you're really hearing the sound of your the thumb, like the base of the thumb. It's yeah, not even the thumb. Yeah, and I discovered that trying to do it. You know, that, during that time, and I, I went out for about you know 30 minutes, tried to put it on the on the cut, and couldn't get it. Eddie tried it. Finally, David called uh, Farrell Morris, a percussionist in Nashville who was very famous at the time. And I think he's still around. I'm not sure. But anyway, he went out there and did it in about 10 minutes, you know. And, and that's because we didn't cut it to a click, which was, you know, and so it kind of drifts a little bit, the, the song does. And, and that's death to try and overdub something specific like that. I mean, at this point, you guys have this group of session musicians that are on most of your cuts and, and, oh, God, and, and, and why don't you talk about them? Cause these guys are the unheralded heroes of, uh, Oh, they are. They're just they're, uh, of the sound that you guys created, which I uh, think, you know, arguably is the, the Nashville sound of this 78 to 80 mm -hmm. period. Yeah. You know, when they talk about the Nashville sound, yeah. it was, you guys crossed over Mm -hmm. In a big way, yeah. Into other charts, yeah, yeah. People have asked me over the years, uh, "What are you guys are trying to do?" And we said we weren't weren't really trying to change anything or do anything other than just make music. That's all we were doing. We didn't we didn't have any constraints because we weren't famous. <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't like we were trying to fit into anything. We started out raw and just doing it whatever felt good. That's what we did, and we just continued that thing. Uh, just whatever the song should be, 
into our minds we put on there and, and not say, oh, is that going to go okay, over okay on country variety or, or, or is it going to be a pop record or anything? We never thought in those terms. We just thought this is what we should do on this. So Love Will Turn You Around by Kenny Rogers is a record where your session guys made a difference. Before we talk about Love Will Turn You Around, t- tell us about your book. Uh, well, I, I've got a book out called uh, Someday I'm Going to Rent This Town. And it's a play, and uh, people ask me well, how I got that name. And it's, there's an old joke, uh, this rube from the country decides to go to New York City and goes and he's got his bags, right? And he goes and he gets off the train from the airport and he set, he's Times Square and he sets his two bags down and he looks up at New York and shakes his fist and says, someday I'm going to own this town. And he looks down and his bags are gone. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought that was a funny joke. So instead of the ego of it's, I'm going to own this town, I think it's funnier to say someday I'm going to rent this town, you know? <laughs> it makes it a little more iffy. So that's how I got the name of it. So Love Will Turn You Around yeah. is um, your first song for Kenny Rogers. Yeah. He's big at this point, super huge, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Oh, he's the biggest at the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. this come about? David Malloy and I were sitting in the demo studio, actually, uh, one well, afternoon, I guess it was, and David picks up the phone. They said, there's a call for you. And we're sitting there, and he goes, it's Kenny Rogers. He says, I got this movie coming out in about a week called, it's about racing, and it's called Six Pack, and uh, there's this girl that's going to be in it that's going to be a big star named uh, Diane Lane. He says, and she co-stars in it with me, and I really think it's going to be a good thing for her and for this for me he says but i've got an album cut but i don't think i have a hit that goes with the movie he says i'm calling around to see if it, you guys can can write one for me or have one we said yeah we always say yeah and they say that <laughs> yeah we can do that he says well look i'm going to be up in lexington this weekend uh doing a concert at the coliseum or whatever big place and he said, uh, why don't you come up there and before the show it and come backstage and we'll talk about it and maybe have something started, something to show me when you get there. And this was like a Wednesday, I think, or something. I said, okay. So we got off the phone and David says, well, well, we'll drive up there that night and, you know, that day and go up. And I said, no, no, David, this is freaking Kenny Rogers, man. The biggest thing in, in, in the world right now. We should get a Silver Eagle bus and put our gear on there and get a driver 
and go up there and write a song on the way up about racing. You know, that's what he wants. Let's do that. And he goes, yeah, okay, let's do that. So on the way up, the guy took a little detour he shouldn't have taken, and we ended up getting there late. So we come in there, and I take my guitar in, which I'd been playing the song as we were writing it about racing. He says, he says, man, he says, uh, you got anything you want to show me? And I said, yeah. And I take the guitar and I start playing it for Kenny. And after the first line, I'm going, I'm getting sweaty. And I'm going, <laughs> this thing sucks. This song sucks. I'm thinking to myself and I'm just sweating. How oh, do you know that feeling? I just knew. You just knew. I, it's just like, it's, it's not magic. And I've never played anybody a start of a song anyhow. What I mean, it's murder to do that why even try you know but the situation was that so luckily he says no no that's too much about racing I'd, I'd said a couple lines you know and it was distinctly about racing he goes no it's got to be a, a, a hit without if it wasn't about racing but it will work for the movie and I got to have it in about a week because this movie's coming out he says look I've got seats for you right up front here tonight enjoy the show and get back to me you know when you get back next day or two and see what you can come up with he says i got one little thing on the guitar that i like and he went start dong 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 this feel like dong 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 something like that you know he goes take that and maybe do something with it that's what you get yeah but we didn't record it so during his show I'm singing that melody in David's ear between songs, that, and he sang thousands of them that night, it seemed like. And, and I'd sing it to David, and then he'd sing it to me the next time, because we didn't record it. We had to remember it, you know? So we get back on the bus, and we start a song. About halfway back, I said, you know, and we had just signed Tom Schuyler to our company. He was, a, he was building our studio. He was a construction, doing construction on our studio, and I found out he was a songwriter, and we ended up signing him as a writer. And I said, I think Tom Scholar would add something good to this song. Let's call him. So I called him from a truck stop at about 2 in the morning. <laughs> said, Tom, if you're any kind of songwriter, come down to the studio and meet us. we got to get this song written for Kenny Rogers. He did. About 5 in the morning, he came down and we wrote this song and went in and demoed it with uh, Spady Brannon and, on bass and Billy Joe Walker and Randy McCormick. And sent it out to Kenny. Yeah, overnighted it. Next day he called. He said, I love it. Come on out, and we'll make a record. So David and I went out to L.A. that afternoon and uh, spent three or four days out there and made a record with Kenny Rogers. And You know what's funny? On that record, if you listen to it, there's one note that goes boom on the piano all through the whole record. It's very dominant. Kenny liked that one note. He goes, what? put that in there more all through the song. And then he left the studio, I remember, and, and there was, the keyboard player had gone home. So I went out and did that E note. It was an E note on a Rhodes piano, and it just hit it, bong. And it's on there about 40 times. I mean, it's, you know, if you hear it now, you'll, it, you'll dominate. You're a very, very soulful piano player. Well, I got paid by the union for playing that note because I was on the session, supposedly. So I, after I got back to Nashville, months later, I'd get calls. Hey, this is such and such producer. I want you to play piano on... I said, what note is it? And they went, what do you mean? What note? I said, I only do an E note. That's all I do on piano. Because I can't play Specialize piano. Specialize in E. Yeah. But I got two or three calls over, the, over that. Because you're on the liner notes. As, yeah. As, yeah. And also in the Musicians Union uh, <laughs> book, because I got paid for that session. <laughs> 
But anyway, that song went crazy. So Love Will Turn You Around goes to number one. It was ASCAP Song of the Year. And ASCAP Song of the Year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It went nuts. Kenny was so great, and that guy is so good. When he gets on the microphone, it's just magic. Some singers are like that, and they have a quality that's just so incredible. So the only song I wanted to talk about, well, not the only, but that I skipped over is Driving My Life Away. Yeah. Backstory Song's mission is to help songwriters and their work get found and discovered so they can make a living and keep on creating great songs. The best way to pay a songwriter is to listen to their songs. Unfortunately, with the decline of radio listeners, songwriters who live off royalties do not make the same royalties they used to. Please help out the Backstory songwriters by listening to their songs on our playlist. Share Backstory song episodes with your friends on your social media and encourage them to do the same. By liking and sharing Backstory song on your social media, you'll be helping the songwriters on this podcast. This is the same era when I was commuting with my dad, and um, I remember the CB radios were big rage, and you know, that's today called Google Waze on your smartphone. <laughs> is, is you use the CB radio to tell you where the cops were, where the accidents yep. were, you know, oh, yeah. where the traffic routes in New York, in and around New York were, yeah. were that you could get to, or wherever you were. My wife's uh, dad was a truck driver, and he, she used CBs all the time. When he was on the road, he'd call it home, you know. They'd talk on the CB all the time. So where did Drive My Life Away come from? Well, um, Steve Wax, the same fellow I called and asked to be released from the label and when it was Electra Asylum, he had changed jobs. He'd become the uh, head of music for Warner Brothers Pictures. And he said, I, there's a movie coming out called Roadie, and it's got Meatloaf in it and the guy that was... Uh, on the Honeymooners, uh, Norton. Art, Art Carney. Art Carney. He says, uh, and the soundtrack's going to be a really good soundtrack. Uh, Teddy Pendergrass, uh, Emmy Lou, and uh, or- Roy Orbison. Uh, really good. More people than that that were good. Alice, maybe Alice Cooper. A, lot, a real eclectic uh, bunch of people. He says, I need a song for it. So uh, David and I and Eddie would get up in our, we had a task cam track at the time up in the attic at, uh, on Music Row. We went up there and started writing this song. 
called Drive My Life Away. I don't know how why it came. I, it just because it was about roadies. They said it was about roadies, you know. So we started writing this song, and about ha- about an hour into it, we were going, "Man, this song is great. We I, we love this song." And so we called Steve Wax and said, uh, "Steve, we got something we think we, is good, but uh, is it?" We want it as a, probably a single on Eddie, too, not just on this, this thing. We need permission that that's going to happen. We need your assurances that's going to happen. We were trying to be subtle about it, you know, because we knew we had something really good. And we didn't want it just to be on a meatloaf album, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, nothing against meatloaf, but that's not what was our goal at the time. We wanted to have another number one, right? Right. So uh, he says, oh, yeah, that'd be great. So we really dove in then, you know, to see if we could make it perfect for Eddie, too. And so so uh, it took us about, I guess, a couple weeks. We worked on that song uh, up in that attic. Sounded pretty good, actually, on an 8-track. It was just us playing guitars. So Drive My Life Away and I Love A Rainy Night are both on Horizon mm-hmm. album. How did you decide which would be the first single? You, Drive My Life Away was the first single. Like I could see the argument over both those great songs. Yeah, I'll tell you. There uh, was there no argument. It was kind of no. Uh, we, all, we were very fortunate. Uh, Electra Asylum Records at the time was experimenting with country music when they opened an office here. And there was no staff. It was a guy named Mike Suttle, who was uh, the independent promotion man, actually was made the head of it and actually uh, a girl named and I know it like back of my hand I can't think of it I'll think of it anyway this this lady was the receptionist and and his helper his assistant and uh, and she ended up being Roger Cook's uh, the great Roger Cook's wife actually and she's wonderful she's a nurse now but anyway that's the only people that was in the office and they were experimenting and we hit with the number one early and and songs that climbed the charts quickly, so they left us alone, which is very unusual. And, and if David and I and Eddie thought we had a hit, they put it out. And Mike, if he thought it too, you know, the head of it, and he was the promotion man too. So we were left alone. They weren't running anything by committees. They didn't have anybody that had any opinions that meant anything. You know, there was nobody there. So we were lucky. So we, when we thought it was a hit, they put it out. The only time that they didn't, it didn't go number one. Uh, after we had <laughs> we had suspicions, and it was song of the year, uh-huh. and they said you have to come out with something real country off the album. And we went, and they said you'll lose your audience if you don't. We said we got song of the year with suspicions, country song of the year. Is that we, country enough? <laughs> <laughs> what else can we do? I mean, how are we going to lose them? With that, with whatever we put out, they're going to play it probably somewhat, you know. So they convinced us in Los Angeles that we should put out "Pour Me Another Tequila," which we didn't. We didn't think it was the hit on the album. It was on the album, but we didn't. That was never our single in our mind, a single in our mind, and it went to three. So then they left us alone, and we did, (laughs) and we got to pick them again. You know, whatever, whatever we, the three of us agreed it was should be the single so we didn't really have a formula of why we picked it other than we just thought this would be a great one yeah. 